Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now 25 seconds. We have complete clearance to launch. We are go. 20. Hello, I'm Richard Hollingham and welcome to this special edition of Space Boffins in celebration of the life of Apollo astronaut Al Warden. 10, 9, 8, ignition sequence start, engines on, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, all engines running, launch commit, liftoff, we have liftoff at 9.34 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The launch of Apollo 15 on the 26th of July 1971, the first of the J-class missions. The spacecraft was packed with science experiments, the first lunar rover, even a satellite. Alongside Command Module Pilot Al Warden, Commander Dave Scott led the mission and the Lunar Module Pilot was Jim Irwin. It was arguably one of the most successful Apollo missions, but it also became the most controversial. In his excellent book, Down to Earth, Al Warden described with uh, refreshing candour his experiences on Apollo 15, the highs of the mission and the lows of the aftermath. Al died in March this year, having devoted the final years of his life to public outreach and education projects, inspiring the next generation of scientists, engineers and astronauts. I interviewed Al twice for Space Boffins and we'll hear newly edited versions of those conversations. I'll also be talking to one of his close friends who worked with him during his frequent visits to the UK. Good. This is really a rock and roll ride, isn't it? Never been on a ride like this before. Oh boy. Dave Scott and Jim Irwin bouncing around on the moon in the first run out of the lunar rover. Meanwhile, alone in orbit, Al had plenty of work to get on with. Here's part of my first conversation with Al, recorded in 2013. I focused on the idea of him being the loneliest human. Question number five for Al Warden. In lunar orbit, you too carried out geologic observations. For example, you reported cinder cones. Could you discuss this and other observations from 60 miles up? It's kind of funny in a way. Everybody's focused on those who land on the moon, but their function is to pick up a rock. They're just out gathering rocks, and they bring all those rocks back. They get analyzed uh, in the laboratories back in Houston, and then they get compared to the remote sensing data that we collected from lunar orbit, And out of that, you can compile a program that uh, allows you then to analyze the entire surface of the moon without ever setting foot on it. You can do it from from orbit quite easily, actually. In terms of the science, you gather a lot more science from lunar orbit than you can on the surface because in the surface, you're tied to one specific spot, and it's not a very big spot on the moon. Uh, But from lunar orbit, you can do a lot. I photographed, as an example, in high resolution, about 25% of the lunar surface. The first time that had ever been done. I mapped about that same 25% of the moon's surface. That's a lot of data. In fact, I guess they're probably still looking at it. I'm interested in, in your thoughts as 
the lander separated from mm-hmm. the command module, and you see it getting smaller and smaller mm-hmm. in the window. What goes through your mind when, when that's happening? Well, <laughs> first off, you wish them luck. You know, I hope you land okay. The second thought is, gee, I'm glad they've gone, because now i got this place all to myself. And so I had three wonderful days uh, in a spacecraft all by myself. And that spacecraft was not very big to begin with, but with three people in it, it's really small. And when I had it all to myself, I had lots of room to move and do whatever I wanted to do. So it was kind of stressful in a way because they were going to go down and land, and that's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, But it was also very calming and peaceful because now I had that all to myself. Calming and peaceful? Wasn't it lonely? Uh... You know, there's a thing about being alone, and there's a thing about being lonely, and they're two different things. I was alone, but I was not lonely. My background was uh, as a fighter pilot in the Air Force, and then as a test pilot, and that was mostly in fighter airplanes. So I was very comfortable being by myself in an airplane. As a matter of fact, I preferred that because um, I didn't particularly want to be responsible for other people that were depending on me. And if I made a mistake and I something happened to me, that's, that's on me. But if I made a mistake and somebody else got hurt, that, that's still on me, and that would be a big thing. But to make a long story short, uh, I was very used to being by myself. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, didn't have to talk to Dave and Jim anymore, uh, except once every time I come around, it's just say hi. On the backside of the moon, I didn't even have to talk to Houston, and that was the best part of the flight. quarter of a million miles away, though. Yeah, you're a long ways away, and, and I guess the thing that, uh, that, that most impressed me about being in lunar orbit, and particularly the times when I was by myself, was that every time I came around the backside of the moon, I got to a window where I could watch the Earth rise, and that was really phenomenal. And I did that 75 times, and it was just a spectacular sight. The backside of the moon where I was, one section of the orbit was shadowed from both the sun and the Earth, so it was complete darkness. And uh, what I found there was that the number of stars were just so immense. In fact, I couldn't pick out individual stars. It was like a sheet of light. And uh, I, I found that fascinating because it changed my ideas about what we think about the universe. Uh, and I realized that we build theories about physical things and about the Earth and about the moon and about the universe out there based on what we can see and we can touch and we can measure and that kind of thing. And I realized that we kind of missed the boat on the universe out there in our thinking because there's just billions of stars out there. Uh, the Milky Way galaxy that we're in contains billions of stars, not just a few. And there are billions of galaxies out there. So what does that tell you about the universe? Well, it tells you that we just don't think big enough. To my mind, that's the whole purpose of the space program is to figure out what that's all about. Did that not make you feel even smaller and even more alone yeah you want to feel insignificant go behind the moon sometime that'll make you really feel like you're not nothing even looking back at the earth you feel that way because uh, the earth of course is home and you associate that with home and it's the only colorful planet we can see and yet it's about the size of the moon when you're out there looking back it's not much bigger so you realize that all these objects are You have to put them on a scale some way to make any sense out of it. And the further away from the Earth you get, the smaller it gets. And you feel pretty small. I'm intrigued that you said you preferred being out of contact with Houston. Why was that? Oh, I didn't need somebody 
yammering in my ear while I was out there. Uh, I had a lot of work to do. I had a lot of things that I was trying to accomplish. And it's kind of a joke. It's it, not really true. I kind of say that in a joking way. If anything serious were to come up, I would certainly want them to be able to contact me. But if everything was going well, I didn't need to talk to them. Uh, and I could concentrate on the science that I was doing. So I was very comfortable uh, back there without having to talk to Houston. Did you get much thinking time, or were you, how busy, how busy were you? I mean, did you get, was a lot of the, your thinking about the universe and, and the Earth, looking at the Earth rise, afterwards or yeah, at, yeah. at the time? Richard, that, no, that's a funny thing. When you're out there observing all this and doing all the remote sensing and the photographing and the this and the that, you don't really have time to think much about it, uh, but you kind of put it in a memory bank, and uh, it's when you get back that you really think about all that. But uh, you don't really have time. I worked 20 hours a day, and I'd get three, four hours sleep at night, and that was my work day when I was there by myself. And so you really don't have the luxury of the time to just sit and look out the window and say, you know, gosh, I can ponder on the universe out there and philosophize about what's there, but I don't have time to do that right now. I'll think about it later. <laughs> Do you think, from your experience, and the experience, I think, uh, if I got this right, you are one of only seven people who have been isolated on their own around the moon so far, so far from Earth. I think it's Apollo 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Is that, is that right? So maybe 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, 17. Yes, yeah, seven. Yeah, seven. Yeah, seven. So only, only seven of you yeah. in that position. Are there lessons that astronauts in the future can learn if uh, and when we return to the moon or go on to, to Mars and start having these long-duration missions, whether, you know, alone or as a couple, as, as one suggestion in the last few weeks, or even a small group? Are there lessons to be learned from, from your experiences? Oh, I think, I think there probably are, uh, although we all had different experiences. The lesson I got was don't get too friendly with your crew. Long periods of time uh, that you spend with the other two, and I found that I was more tuned to doing the job I had to do than I was in interfacing with them. We all had things to do, but, uh, but I focused on the, on the operations that I had to do. And I think there's a lesson there. I, we were very good professionally. We really worked well together professionally. But we're not particularly great friends. And I think that was a benefit. Um, I don't know whether they're going to have to test, uh, like Mars trip people, they're going to have to test them psychologically to see if they can take the long times and the, and the isolation and all that thing. All that kind of thing. I think going to Mars as a solo would be pretty. I, I don't think that. I don't think you could do that. Uh, I think that's too long a time. Uh, but I think if the crew is picked, well, I shouldn't say that because I, I also happen to believe that you could pick what you think is a compatible crew, but you're not going to find out until they get into space whether they are or not. Uh, I think we. It's the same same thing as selecting astronauts into the program to begin with. You can give them all the physicals in the world, uh, and everybody is just perfectly fine, but it's only when they get in the space that you find out that some can and some can't. So you're saying it's essentially a professional working relationship, whether it's a mission to the moon uh, of, of a few days or a mission to Mars of, of months. 
Oh, absolutely. I think it, and, and I think that would be the key to any long-term flight is it has to stay, it has to remain as a professional relationship. There's got to be somebody in command, uh, and there got to be people that work for that someone in command, and, and they have to maintain that status during the flight if they're going to retain their, their, their if they're going to retain any mind at all. I think uh, I think it would be very tough if you got too familiar with the rest of the crew, then you kind of lose the leadership sort of thing that you need. Uh, so I think it's very important that these are all done on a, on a kind of professional basis and not on a good old boy buddy basis. And you mentioned this in your book. You, you were friends, you remained friends, I think, with Jim Irwin, but not particularly. You don't particularly remain friends with, D- with Dave Scott, the commander. No, Dave and I had our differences of opinion. Dave was a command module pilot before, so so Dave was really the ultimate expert on what the command module pilot needed to do, but uh, Dave didn't go to the moon. He went in Earth orbit, and that's a whole different game. And I had ideas about what we should do, uh, and Dave and I would sometimes be in conflict with those. And, and basically, uh, I really had to talk hard to get Dave to agree with me on something. Uh, so we were always kind of... Not butting heads exactly, but not exactly on the same path, you know? Uh, we, we, we were not integrated that much. Uh, I think that allowed us to be a more effective crew when we got, in, when we got it going and, and once we got to the moon uh, because of that little tension between us. I know how I felt, and I think Dave felt the same way, and that is I'm going to do everything, I'm going to do it perfectly, and I'm not going to miss anything because I don't want him to say something, okay? So I think that's the professional thing that's really important, is that if you get too buddy-buddy and there's something that gets a little hard on the flight and everybody says, oh, well, don't worry about it. We'll, you know, we don't have to do that. We didn't have that attitude. We, our attitude was we're going to do everything. Kind of interesting, there, on every single flight, there is a normal load of science objectives. And, and, and each flight, as, a, as the program, program progressed, each flight got more and more heavily into the science. We, we probably were an order of magnitude ahead of everybody else in our science. We accepted all the science projects that anybody threw at us. The normal uh, load of science, let's say, let's say it equals 100%. Well, based on that as a, as a baseline... We, did, we, we loaded our flight plan with 125%, and that meant that we were busy all the time. But, you know, on the other hand, you're never going to go there again. You're only going to go that way once, and you need to do everything you can. We ended up accomplishing all 125 of the objectives, and I think that was the first time that a crew had done that. And I don't think anybody ever even came close to that after us. So uh, we, were, we were pretty pleased with that and very very science oriented on the flight but uh, that that really that that kept us pretty busy uh, that I suppose comes back to your earlier point about having a good professional working relationship right. a bit of tension um, people who know what they're doing but you don't have to necessarily be buddies afterwards and I think looking at it from the outside we, we all expect you to get on we all mm. expect you to be to be chums you know everyone has gone to the moon everyone has been involved in Apollo but that didn't necessarily be the case. Well, I think that's true. I, I think there are some crews that, that actually remained close buddies. I think Apollo 12, they were always buddies. Pete Conrad was the consummate commander. 
Uh, he was in charge. Everybody knew it. There's no question about it. And he'd let you know if you crossed him. But he treated his crew like brothers. And if you saw one, you saw all three because they were always together. We were kind of the opposite of that. We did a lot of things together, but we also lived our own lives. And we trained together, but we didn't socialize a lot together like the Apollo 12 crew did. I think that probably made us a more effective crew when we got there. Al Warden, and that was from 2013. And uh, thanks to our friends at Space Lectures for making that happen. We'll hear more about the mission, including Al's pioneering spacewalk, a little later on. This is the Space Boffins podcast, a special celebrating the life of Al Warden. It's great to be back. We had a great time on a trip. I think we accomplished a lot. Uh, We had a lot of support from a lot of people. And uh, I'd just like to say that we appreciate every bit of it, and we could not have done the mission. We couldn't have gone one step without the support of the many, many thousands of people involved. Thank you very much. The crew returned from the moon as heroes, but the adulation didn't last long. Like other astronauts before them, Dave Scott, Al Warden and Jim Irwin agreed to take some postal covers to the moon via an intermediary on behalf of a stamp dealer. The deal was that the stamps wouldn't be sold until the astronauts had left the space programme and money raised would go into savings accounts for their families. Al would later describe the deal as, without a doubt, the worst mistake I ever made. Scott carried the covers to the moon in a sealed package in his spacesuit, but within weeks of splashdown and without the astronauts' permission, some of the items went on sale. The crew returned the profits and told the dealer to keep the stamps, but it was too late. NASA wanted to make an example of them. The fallout from the affair led to recriminations, a Senate investigation, and ended the crew's astronaut careers. In a second interview with Al, recorded in 2017, I asked him about the affair. What happened on our flight was not, some, was not something strange. Uh, it was not the first time. Uh, it had happened on Apollo 14, and uh, they did nothing about it. Uh, I guess we probably didn't think that uh, it was such a big deal because it had been done before, but I think NASA at the time decided they needed to make an example of somebody, and they got on us. What surprised me is that uh, the stuff that, was, that made such a problem for our flight was something that Dave Scott had done. And um, most of that was stuff that he had done without telling Jim and I. And yet all three of us got hit with, uh, with, with, with the issue. And Jim and I were forced to leave Houston, and Dave stayed there. So you answer me, what is fair about that? Here's the guy who caused it. They save him, and they and they throw Jim and I under the bus. Well, actually, Dave threw us under the bus. Uh, so Jim and I got the axe, and Dave stayed there. Uh, so yeah, there was nothing fair about what NASA did, and I blame a guy. I blame Chris Kraft mostly for that. Um, he told me is uh, I was doing. I had to go talk to him before I left, and he told me, uh, "Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out." Uh, you're now just a dime a dozen engineer, and um, we don't we don't want you. Uh, but he but he but he but he saved Dave Scott, and I and I've never figured out why. If he was really a a um, positive guy, and he was really looking for the truth, then the whole thing would have been different. Why do you think that was? Was it because Chris Craft had gone into a new position, or that they they were reorganizing for the shuttle? I think, I think there were some people in NASA management who wanted to save Dave. 
Um, and I think Chris Kraft was probably part of that. Uh, Dave had already flown twice before. Uh, he was probably much more valuable to the program than we were, and uh, and and the and the truth of the matter was not important. Uh, what was what was fair and what was just uh, wasn't important to the picture that they that they wanted to draw. So Dave got saved and we got canned. But when, when you read about the hearings, you were you were exonerated. I mean, you know that that's the crazy thing. But it was as if NASA decided, right, we we'll pin the blame on them. They'll go away, mm-hmm. and it'll all be fine. Well, yeah, that's what you know. That that was easy to pin it on Jim and I. Um, as a matter of fact, what was interesting about the whole thing is that I'm the one who sued the government, and 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 got the covers back. And it was very interesting how that happened. Uh, we were going to depose everybody in the world, including President Nixon and Senator Glenn and everybody right on down the line uh, about artifacts that they had that had been flown in space and given to them. If 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 those artifacts that are flown in space had been given to somebody were any indication, then the stuff that Dave carried in, on our flight, I mean, that should have been nothing. Uh, so we did get all the covers back. Do you now get on with Dave Scott, or is there still a an issue? Dave and I don't talk, no. And why did you stay in NASA, though? Was that to prove a point? How's that? Why did you stay in NASA, you know, after, after that? Was oh, that to oh, prove a point? Well, I was actually told I could go back to the Air Force. Uh, but then I found out that the Air Force uh, would have assigned me to the Pentagon in a public relations job. And that was the last thing in the world I wanted. So I... I I saw everybody. I went to see everybody I could think of. And um, I actually um, found a friend in Dale Myers, who was a, a deputy administrator, uh, who understood what had happened and was on my side. And so he worked out a deal for me to go out to Ames. And the nice thing about that was I had, I had uh, like three years to go until I could retire from the Air Force. And I did not want to go back to the Air Force at that point because I didn't trust them. And so I went out to Ames for the last three years, and that was a, kind of a happy thing for me because I loved it. Tough to start with, though. You described they gave you an office at the sort of back oh, yeah. of a hangar that, you know, keep well, you out of the that way. Was, that was part of the game plan, and, I, and, and that was Hans Mark, who was the director. And I, 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 I was very unhappy about it at the time, but then I realized that's the way Hans played the game. He got me out of the way, got me hidden for about a year, and then all of a sudden, I'm one of the directors at Ames, and I'm running the Future Forecast Division, and when that got disbanded, then I became the director of the Airborne Science Group, which is the biggest group out there. Uh, so Hans was really a, a, a great supporter of me out there. And the first year when I was sitting up there in that hangar, looking out onto the hangar floor, I, I, I just kind of forget about that, because that was something I had to go through. And what about your, your time since? Because, you know, again, in your book, you, you write, you've almost done more to popularize space than you did through your mission. You've done more for space since than, mm. than your mission itself. Well, when I left, um, I, 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 I taught in a college for a while. Uh, then I went through a series of things. Um, I had a small research company, and we developed an avionics device. Sold that to BF Goodrich, which is a big avionics company. And uh, they turned around then and said, we want to hire you to run the company to do that. So I worked for BF Goodrich for seven years. When I left there, um, 
I sort of did a number of things, but basically I worked with uh, the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. I did a lot of charity work, uh, giving out scholarships. In fact, when I finished this tour here, I would be going out to Colorado to give a couple of scholarships out. And that's kind of been my life's work since I retired. But after I retired, I also wrote a couple of books, wrote the book of poetry and then wrote a children's book with Fred Rogers, did a bunch of television with Fred Rogers, uh, talking about space to kids. Uh, then uh, ended up writing my uh, the, the book that you have, Falling to Earth. You ran for Congress as well. Well, I did. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. People people think that uh, that that um, going to the moon is such a big intellectual mind thing, and it's not really. It's a skill that you learn. It's like riding a bike or like driving a car or flying an airplane. Uh, the intellectual pursuit was always uh, of interest to me. And I had made a lot of, I, I had said a lot of things about the government and the way, what I didn't like and this and that and the other thing. And one day I just, you know, looking in the mirror and saying, you know, you got to shut up and you got to start putting your money where your mouth is. So I ran for Congress. I lost uh, because uh, I believe that I was an outsider to the party and they don't like outsiders. Uh, so I lost that election. But I, but that was, that was very challenging for me. Uh, that made me really give a lot of thought to uh, lots of things. And I loved it. I loved the campaigning and all that. And that was an intellectual challenge. So I think that, that sums up Al Warden, really. He didn't define himself just by his experiences as a NASA astronaut. He had a career, really, beyond that. And, and I'm joined now by Vix Southgate, who worked with Al on his appearances and education projects during his, his many visits uh, to the UK. Uh, he did come to the UK a lot, didn't he, Vix? I mean, uh, how did you first meet him? Well, I, I first met Al in 2015, so not very long ago at all in the whole scheme of his life, um, at an event called Cosmicon in Manchester. I got a call from Francis French, who you may know co-wrote his autobiography, Falling to Earth. And um, I met Francis through my research of Yuri Gagarin in 2010. So Al phoned me and he said, uh, if you're free this weekend, Al's in Manchester, uh, you know, go and meet him, say hi. Um, so I did. So I, I, I waltzed up to, to this um, desk and I said, hi, Al. Uh, Francis French said I should come and say hi. And he greeted me like an old friend. And he said, any friend of Francis's is a friend of mine. And, you know, we just got on from that moment on. And, and then came quite, I mean, he came quite frequently to the, to the UK. And, and you were working with him on a lot of these education projects. And, you know, he would pop up at Farnborough, for example, alongside Tim Peake, and he'd be mobbed by people. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, I, after meeting him in Manchester, I persuaded him to come back to the UK in uh, the October for World Space Week. And I organised an event in Oxford, which uh, followed on from a British Interplanetary Society uh, conference. So, you know, so I had less than three months to organise that. And he kind of like said, you know, you've done really well with this girl. Would you mind being my manager um, and looking after me at all these events when I'm in the UK or in Europe? And, and you know, so Farnborough was one of those events. It was really quite interesting to see. Obviously, there was the Tim Peake effect when Tim Peake was at Farnborough and then to have an Apollo astronaut stood next to him, which it was just phenomenal. The The effect that he had on people around him was, was brilliant and everybody wanted to say hi. 
I mean, I've I met him. I think uh, three times. I think once at Space Fest, and then a, a couple of times where we did these these long these long interviews. I was also in email contact with him, and most of that was was thank, thanks to you. Um, he just struck me as such a cool kind of man. There was a. A point where I, I managed to contrive to introduce him to the um, curator at the Science Museum, Doug Millard, and um, you were involved in this. And we got we got uh, outside the the Science Museum, and D- Doug Millard was kind of starstruck by this uh, this Apollo astronaut. But I was just kind of standing there in his his leather jacket. Kind of casually <laughs> smoking, and he just—I yeah, mean, I I'm not advocating <laughs> smoking, but he just looked—he was just so yeah. cool, you know. He—he he was, and he was just personable and normal, and didn't seem to have this this massive bubble of ego around him, which you know some of that era of astronauts had. No, I—he was not. There was no ego with Al at all. You know, he was very cool. I have to admit that. You know, any photographs I have of him, that he's always looking very cool. Me, not so much, but he was always cool. Um, but he was very approachable. You know, ev- everybody could come up to him. Everybody thought of him as a friend, and he treated everybody as an e- as an equal. Treating everybody as an equal meant that he was able to engage with people more. You know, he he was very personable, he was very kind, he was very generous with his time and, and, you know, just an all-round fantastic guy, really. And he did, you know, I mean, he had his last space mission in, what, 1971, but then he stayed on at NASA. But then the latter part of his life, he was really involved in in outreach and and STEM and and, and pretty proactive in, in that sort of area. Uh, yeah, he was. I mean, the next generation of um, people who need to do space exploration are the younger generation, obviously, you know. And so it was a, a major passion of his to engage with these people, to inspire these people. And so STEM was one of the main ways that he did it. I mean, he, he worked with the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation as well. Everything that he did was to try and inspire future generations to travel into space because he he truly believed that you know the whole point of space travel is that he we have to get off this planet you know this planet is not going to live forever so he wanted to try and inspire the next generation of people to to do that and to make it possible what do you think his his legacy will be as a as an apollo astronaut i mean i've mentioned already in in the podcast about his book is is superb honest uh account of of being an astronaut and also the the aftermath of being an astronaut yeah his legacy really i mean you look at the the 24 people who voyaged to the moon you know he was that there were 12 that landed on the moon and walked on the moon but you know his his seat on the capsule that that traveled around the moon the the amount of times he saw the the backside of the moon you know his legacy is more than that because he did so much more since and especially after he retired when he was starting to do his astronaut scholarship foundation work he was engaging in stem work he was doing a variety of roles um, to try and inspire the next generation. And one of those things that he was doing in the very last year of his life 
was um, an Endeavour scholarship, which is in his name. So it's the Al Worden um, Endeavour Scholarship. And that was very important to him. So I think if you if you're talking of a legacy... I think that will be one of the main ones. Vix, uh, thank you very much for, for talking to Space Boffins. Uh, let's return to Apollo 15 and two firsts that set the mission apart from its predecessors. Three, two, one, launch. Once the crew was reunited after the lunar landing, they released a satellite into orbit around the moon. Tally-ho. It was sprung out of an instrument bay on the side of the service module. Then, on their return from the moon, Al Warden conducted the first spacewalk in deep space, leaving the command module to retrieve experiments. That is really a most unbelievable, remarkable thing. Houston, is there anything else you want me to check in the sim bay before we go back in? Al, oh, we'd be pleased to have any general comments you had about the sim bay experiments otherwise than what we specifically asked you. Did everything look in order? I can remember looking out the hatch for the first time and saying, hey, this is really cool. I'm outside. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I had practiced that whole thing so many times that it was not a big surprise. I walked kind of hand over hand down to the back of the service module to, to get the film cassette. In fact, our high-resolution camera, the, the Icon camera, it was stuck in the out position, and I had to kind of climb over it to get to the back. It was very easy. I remember going out there and getting the canister and hooking my wrist tether to it and taking it back to Jim. Went back out and got the mapping camera and took that back to Jim. Went back out a third time, kind of stood up on the outside and looked around, and that was a lot of fun because I could see both the Earth and the Moon. Part of the problem was that I had trained so well on that particular thing that I was done in 40 minutes. I would love to have spent a couple of hours out there just looking around. There was absolutely no reason at all for me to stay out there any longer, so I got back in. You just said it was kind of neat seeing the Earth and the Moon. That image must be engraved in your mind. What was that that Well, it, it was kind of. The best way I could describe it is to show you a picture that Pierre Mion did. After the flight, since I didn't have a camera, I had to get with an artist and draw the picture that I saw... And so it's Jim Irwin standing in the hatch, and you can see me reflected in his visor, and, and behind him is the open hatch, and behind that is the moon. And, and, and that's kind of the way it looked. It was pretty spectacular. Does that give you any sense of your place in that, you know, how far you've come? Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I, I didn't get a sense of distance. The moon was huge. The earth was relatively small even then. It's like you're someplace that's not connected to reality. It's like you're in a movie watching something like that. What do you feel about this, the, 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 the sort of push towards going back to, back to the moon? Well, I think it's good to go back to the moon to find out what it's going to take to live in a hostile environment for over a period of time. Whether there's anything else on the moon that's valuable to us or not, I don't know. See, I, to me, if we were to go back to the moon, the one thing we could do that would be really, really gee whiz is build a huge radio telescope on the backside of the moon. That I could support. And I guess the satellite that you launched is probably down there somewhere on the... Oh, it's down there somewhere. That satellite was designed to be there for a year in orbit. I I don't don't know how long it lasted, but yeah, the gravitational forces of the moon pulled it down sooner or later. It's somewhere there, yeah. 
Apollo 15 astronaut Al Warden, who died aged 88 in March. It was a real honour to have talked to Al at length, and I would have loved to have spent more time with him. We were in email contact and I was planning another interview, but of course that never happened. I hope you enjoyed hearing again some of our conversations. We'll have a new Space Boffins for you in a couple of weeks as we look forward to the first launch of an American crewed spacecraft since 2011. Thanks for listening.